you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 8, it's going to be on page 572 of the blue uh, Bibles in the pews. We'll be reading verses 11 through 15. Right, so this is in the midst of an oncoming Assyrian invasion, uh, 800 years before the time of Christ uh, in Israel. And God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, saying this, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now we turn over to 1 Peter 3. Uh, It's going to be on page 1016, 1016 of the blue Pew Bibles, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 22. So uh, if you're visiting, we're going through a series on First and Second Peter that we're calling uh, Memory, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People, and so we're just continuing from where we left off last week. Now, last week, Pastor Mike uh, looked at what uh, the heart of the book of First Peter, uh, and he's been saying uh, that For the past several weeks, we've been working our way through a funnel until we reach that heart. And now we're to the spout of that funnel. I left the funnel in the kitchen. Um, But we're at the the spout of that funnel where everything else throughout the rest of the book of 1 Peter is going to be sort of application that is pouring out of the mouth of that funnel in this letter to God's minority people in Asia Minor. So... Uh, Let's read 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. The Apostle Peter writes, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's actually the word for fear. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer For doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us near to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which or in whom he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All that I have read to you from both the Old and New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My friends, all men are but dust, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, Father, you know that there are times we are tempted to stray from following you. We don't always trust you as we should, and we need your help to stay true to our Savior. So use your word today, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, encourage us and transform us so that we would do good for your sake in all manner of circumstances and suffering. Give us your spirit To this end and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, just a reminder, the believers here in Asia Minor that the Apostle Peter is writing to uh, seem to, or are about to possibly, go through some sort of what we might call persecution. Now, whether it was a coordinated wiping out by the local authorities or whether it was just pushback from their neighbors, we're not sure. That's not spelled out here. But whether minimal or maximum, getting pushback for the Christian faith has been the norm for God's minority people since the beginning. And when we say minority people, we're talking about the fact that both the Christians in Peter's day and really Christians throughout all of time, I realize there's some context-sensitive things, but Christians were truly a minority. And at times they truly were and have been under government-mandated persecution. That is, some governors, soon after this letter, would want people professing Jesus as Lord killed. And and in many times, in most times, there has at least been a certain social cost for following Jesus. Now, it's certainly not always at the same intensity in all times and all places. Uh, In fact, I think it would be very sober-minded of us to acknowledge that in the last millennia in the West, Christians have been very privileged and not faced at least significant persecution as these people uh, have. But for these believers and all believers, when difficulties for our faith come up, we nonetheless are able to relate with what is happening here with these believers. Because Peter is writing to give believers then and now manners and mandates for living amongst those who don't believe what we believe, particularly when it is costly to do so. Now, this passage is almost infamous for being difficult to interpret, but... Uh, I think the main point, regardless of your interpretation, the main point 
of what Peter is writing here breaks down to a fairly simple idea in context. And that is, do good even if you suffer for it, because Jesus is in charge. Do good even if you suffer for it, because Jesus is in charge. And that's how the passage breaks down, right? So verses 13 through 17 give a couple of manners and mandates for God's minority people, particularly in light of the pushback they either are or are about to receive. And verses 18 through 22 then function as the why, as memories for motivation. Uh, for responding the way Peter has instructed them to. So we're going to walk straight through this passage, just one verse at a time, basically, with verses 13 through 17 being two mandates and verses 18 through 22 being three memories to motivate. So this is a good Puritan sermon with five points. So let's begin with two ways to live or two manners and mandates. First... Be good. (laughs) And second, answer non-Christians with gentleness and respect. So first, Peter says, as E.T. said to Eliot, be good. (laughs) And generally, you're not supposed to give be good sermons, but that's where Peter goes, right? He says in verse 13, now who is there to harm you? Literally, Who is there to harm you for being a zealot for what is good? Be a zealot for what is good. Because even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that is, of those people that might persecute you, nor be troubled. Now, we need to acknowledge that Peter starts out saying that ordinarily no one is going to harm you For doing good. If anything, doing good, uh, as is to be expected, is going to keep you in people's good graces. It's going to cause many to think well of you. And being good may have many sheer practical benefits, as in things may just go well for you as more people like you, because there is still common grace in the world. God restrains evil to some extent, and so... We can be good for sheer practical benefits. But Peter is also clear, and it is really the emphasis of this passage, that being good is also going to cause some to slander you. It's going to have a cost, which is why Peter also has to encourage us in verses 16 and 17, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In our broken world, surrounded by corruption, doing the right thing will sometimes cause us suffering. Now, what could the Christians have been doing that was upsetting people so much in Peter's day? Well, maybe nothing. Um, evil has, the devil has a way of just bringing suffering on Christians. But we do know at least three sort of interesting historical tidbits. 
Soon after this letter, Christians would, at least on paper, be persecuted for three things. Atheism, incest, and cannibalism. That's not where you thought this was going to go, is it? (laughs) So one, atheism, Christians accused of atheism, because the Christians wouldn't participate in the pagan worship of the imperial cult, and they wouldn't participate in certain things the government asked them to do that then came across as unpatriotic to some. Let the hearer understand. Second, they were accused of incest because of a misunderstanding of the fact that even married people referred to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Their relationships inside the household of God were defined by Christ and the relationship in Christ more than by any other relationship. Yes, our relationships within the church even overwrite family at times. And third, cannibalism. Because the Lord's Supper, we say it every week. Uh, This is the flesh and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And people may have thought they ate real human flesh and drank actual human blood in communion. Now, these misunderstandings of Christian practice led Christians to be labeled haters of humanity. Now, how much of this was real misunderstanding and how much was just propaganda against Christians, I don't know. But I do know that whatever the case, there was more and more a social cost, an increasing social cost for being known as one who followed Jesus. And while we may not be being persecuted yet, and I would argue we're not, just to put all my cards on the table, I think we can all relate with increasing social costs for following Jesus. And Peter quotes Isaiah 8. Right? He seems Peter is writing as these things happen, and he wants to encourage them in whatever they're facing, whatever ostracization that comes for following Jesus in some respect. And so Peter paraphrases Isaiah 8, 12 through 13, which I'll read for you again. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now, as I said, in Isaiah's context, he was dealing with the Assyrians about to invade Jerusalem and what the Jews knew of as God's kingdom at the time. Uh, God told them through Isaiah that his might and his purposes would prevail so that they could be encouraged that no matter what happened, he had a plan for their welfare and not for evil, uh, plans to give them a future and a hope. Because Yahweh is the one who made heaven and earth and is in control of all things, including these invading armies. And so while they may seem scary, and while God isn't going to tell us all the reasons he's allowing certain things to happen, we can fear God, not coming armies, not coming persecutions. And that's what Peter is making a point about here, saying Yahweh 
The God of Jesus Christ is the God of the Jews. This is our God. And so we can go about doing good no matter what when we fear God and fear no other. Or as Jesus said in our reading of the law, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, my friends. Fear not for you, Christian. You, Fred. You, Mike. You, Moose, all of you, you're of more value than many sparrows. And this is your God. So we can ask ourselves, where do we find it at least tempting? Where do we find it at least tempting to forsake some mandate of Christ because of what people around us might say? Or because of how we've been treated by those around us? Where are we hesitant to do what we know to be good because it either has the potential, because it has a potential cost to do what God would have us do, or it's simply inconvenient, or it might shame us? Ed Welch wrote a book entitled When People Are Big and God is Small, and I think that pretty much captures what Peter is saying here. Do that which is good, even if it costs you. Because you fear God, respect God, care about God, and you know he is in charge and he loves you. So care about what he thinks more than you desire worldly things or worldly acceptance. The second mandate Peter then gives is an instruction about how to answer those who ask us about our faith especially in context, those who are accusing us, slandering us, or being hostile in their asking us about our faith. Because living the Jesus way, apparently, should lead some people to ask us why we live this way. Living the Jesus way, living a life of doing good, should lead some to ask us, why do you follow Jesus? just as it leads some to accuse and even slander us. And so Peter writes, starting in verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is the word phobos in the Greek. It's, It's the word same word used for fear God, right? Have respect for an unbeliever persecuting you. The same respect for an unbeliever persecuting you as you would have for God. That's what this text says. And so have a good conscience. Now, so there's sort of an assumption that Christ is preeminent in our hearts. We're honoring Christ the Lord as holy. But then we're also going to be ready to make a defense of our faith. Now, If you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably heard that this word defense is the word apologia, from which we get the words apology and apologetics. That's the sort of academic discipline of defending our our, our position, whatever it is. So generally speaking, 
we are to have a reasonable explanation for our faith that includes the main points of Christianity and a defense of why we follow Jesus. Now, I do want to say, Peter isn't saying everyone needs to be a scholar with a rapier wit and all the answers. Although, if you got it flaunted, I guess. Uh, that was supposed to be funny. Um, anyway, good, I got, a, I got a pity laugh. So, Peter is, is, is not saying we need to be scholars with rapier wit. He is saying that we should understand our faith and why we believe it enough to tell someone else clearly and kindly. The Apostle Paul put it this way, especially when it comes to our enemies. Remember, this is primarily about those asking us with hostility. We are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer each person. And if you need more help, Jesus himself promised us that when you're brought before the courts and the synagogues, the Holy Spirit will give you the words you need in the time of need. So whether or not people then believe isn't up to us. I'm going to say that again. Whether or not people believe isn't up to us. But whether or not we are kind and clear is up to us. And i got to say it again, Peter is talking about being kind and gentle and respectful even when someone asking about our faith is hostile because that's mostly what's happening here. So this isn't just about doing evangelism. It's about how we act when God's minority people are facing scrutiny or even persecution for being different from the world around us. We, when those things happen, when those things come to us, We are to have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, refusing to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. One of the greatest witnesses to the power of the Holy Spirit is when hostile people attack us with antagonistic questions and we do not answer in the same worldly way. I've seen videos of Christians calling themselves apologists going around basically antagonizing people. And that is not acceptable. Because that's not what Jesus would do. We are to be like him who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Many people think Christians don't have reasonable explanations, but whether or not we have good explanations, unbelievers are rightly suspicious of us when we answer harshly or condescendingly, even if their question was harsh and condescending. I hear too many Christian too many Christians answer other than Christians with the same volume and venom. Christians do not fight fire with fire, my friends. We are comfortable taking the weaker position because in our seeming weakness is God's strength. It is inappropriate and sinful when we speak down to other than Christians. We are to give a gentle answer even to those accusing us of evil. 
because we trust God's providence and God's final judgment that those antagonizing will either be saved or put to shame by our respectful answer. But here's the thing. At this point, someone in here should be feeling guilty. If no one's feeling guilty, we're not all being self-reflective, especially me. Because, but being good and being gentle and respectful to unbelievers and anyone else, especially in the face of persecution, is not going to just happen. If I ended the sermon right there, I have done you zero good. But, you know, you've got to feel bad before you can feel better. See, being kind to people that are mean to us is not our natural reaction. I don't know if you knew that or not. If you've ever watched kids on a playground, when the kids are mean to one kid, the kid that's being bullied isn't naturally nice back. No, that is a supernatural thing when we do that. Our natural reaction is to use the same tactics and answer with the same level of vitriol that we receive. It's only fair. But Christians are to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Some of you should have this one memorized. So say it with me. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Everyone else, that's why you should go to Sunday school. Uh, That's a free application. So, to respond the way Paul tells us there, to uh, overcome evil with good, is not a reaction that makes sense, except and unless there's one who loves us and has done something greater for us. My friends, it's only knowing Jesus that's going to enable us to do good and answer the questions of other than Christian antagonizers with gentleness and respect. But just just telling you what to do isn't going to change you. It's going to take real effort, don't get me wrong. You need to try. We do have something to contribute through our effort. But just making a list of the things I said won't work. We have to be transformed by something, and that's the rest of this sermon. We have to be transformed by grace, the Holy Spirit showing us Jesus. And that's why Peter goes where he does in verse 18. Uh, In the ESV, it's translated for, but I'd translate it because. Everything in verses 13 through 18 is, uh, or in 18 through 22 is because, or rather everything in verses 13 through 17 is because of what comes in verses 18 through 22. So, what does he give us? What can help us to do good and answer kindly? Remembering. And remembering three things, at least that's what he names here. One, penal substitutionary atonement. That's a big fancy phrase for you. Two, remembering our baptism. And three, Remembering who is in charge. Now first, what will enable us to do good and answer kindly is remembering penal substitutionary atonement. What on earth does that mean? So, (laughs) 
penal substitutionary atonement is a big fancy phrase for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Penal, like penitentiary or penalty. Substitute, in the place of something or someone else. Atonement, paying uh, for a debt owed. Right? So we should have a penalty because of our sin. But someone else has taken that penalty in our place, paying a debt we owe. And it is Jesus that faced that penalty and paid the debt we owe in our place as our substitute on the cross. Now, a visitor might hear that and go, wait, so you're saying that God is some cop in the sky just watching and keeping count of everything we do wrong. Actually, yes, sort of. Just stay with me. You see, God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of love. Now, God's love is so much grander than mere justice. Notice I gave a qualifier before someone says I called God unjust. I did not. But God's love is grander than mere justice because it also includes mercy. God loved us so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, because God is the perfectly righteous judge, he must keep account in order to be just. If there is any injustice in the world that makes you angry, be it racism or Russia or scandal or sex trafficking, you want God to be a God of justice. You want a God who will bring justice, who will make the accounts paid. So, be conservative or liberal, be atheist or Christian, you actually want a God of justice. But Christians have something better than just a God of justice because our God is loving and merciful and has made a way for the debt we owe because of the injustices we have done to be forgiven for all who will turn to him in faith and repentance through his son, Jesus Christ, who the text here says, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. My friends, on the cross, Jesus truly experienced all of eternal hell and faced the penalty for us, though he did not deserve it because of his sinless life. And in so doing, he took our punishment as a substitute forever and always paying the debt we owe because of our sin. And in so doing, Jesus brought us near to God. Not only made us right with God, but brought us into intimacy with him so that we can be in his presence. Now the reason this matters, the reason this helps us do good and especially answer gently and kindly to those who might be persecuting us, is because outside of Christ, we are the unrighteous. Go back to that assurance of pardon. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No one would die, one will scarcely die for a good person, but the implication is we're all the bad people. 
But God now has given his son for us and become our loving father who will never leave or forsake us. And even when he wills our suffering in ways we cannot understand, we can know it is for our good. So remembering penal substitutionary atonement keeps us from ever getting arrogant or haughty or even thinking we're better than that not other than Christian person persecuting us. We're at the very best on the same level with them, if not worse than them. Or at least we would be outside of Christ. And therefore, we can have no pride in ourselves. And so we answer kindly because that's how we've been loved. Outside of Christ, we are the unrighteous. So we can never think we're better than those around us. But when we give an answer for our faith, we are merely giving an answer to a fellow sinner that we want to come know the love of God with us. And we become glad to do good for others out of gratitude for what we have received. In other words, we love because God loved us first. The second thing we remember is the sign of our salvation. So underneath that, the sign of penal substitutionary atonement for us, baptism. Remember your baptism, for it is the sign of the grace you have received. Now, verses 19 through 22 are those notoriously hard-to-interpret verses. And so rather than giving you an academic explanation of all the various interpretations, I think I've pulled out one thing that no matter what interpretation you hold to, you can walk away with, and that is this. Baptism is God's mark on his minority people to tell us that we belong to him and he loves us. Baptism is God's mark on his minority people to tell us we belong to him and he loves us. So in verse 19, uh, it's, the ESV says in which, but I think the ESV footnote is probably right. This should be in whom, which means, so now I'm going to tell you my interpretation of the passage, okay? This means that this passage is about how Christ through the Holy Spirit in the prophets of old, who Peter talked about back in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, were in fact preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to those in the days of Noah. And then he says that there is a connection of Noah's flood to baptism. And this would be encouraging to the minority people in Asia Minor because Noah himself and the eight who were saved were a minority people. You can read about in Genesis 6 through 9 how the rest of the world had become wicked and they were God's chosen people. And so while the world watched on, reviling and ridiculing, Noah built the boat he was commanded. And those receiving this letter would have known that story and gone, oh, we relate with this minority people. And God saved them and God will likewise deliver us. And after telling that story and making that connection, Peter makes, says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying that baptism is a sign of both judgment and salvation. In fact, judgment in some cases is 
the salvation. Judgment in that the waters brought death to the unrepentant in Noah's day. But salvation in that those same waters lifted the ark and saved Noah and his family. Now, when Peter says baptism now saves you, he qualifies it. So for those of you sort of familiar with some theology stuff, he's not saying it saves you ex opera operata, right? So it's not saying just because you're baptized, you're automatically going to heaven because it's not like the removal of dirt from the body, but rather baptism is connected to our faith. So all who are baptized also have an obligation to still repent and believe. And our baptism is the mark upon us which God looks at for the faithful and for the unfaithful, representing both blessing and judgment. And so those who come to God in faith in Jesus Christ can appeal through their baptism because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was raised for our justification. So baptism is an appeal, a request, a reminder to God, if you will, that your conscience is clear, your sins are washed away, and you belong to him. Did God forget that? No, but it is common in prayer for us to remind God of things. It's good for our souls, and it's mysteriously how God works. And so God sees this mark upon his minority people, and he blesses us who are righteous in his sight. Therefore, my friends, baptism is not a sign we perform of our commitment to God, but rather baptism is a sign bestowed upon us by God's grace of his commitment to us. Baptism is a sign bestowed upon us of God's commitment to us and a sign of what he has done and will do for us. And so for the Christian, baptism functions as an encouragement. Persecuted Christian, suffering Christian, be encouraged and remember your baptism. That's what Martin Luther would say, remember your baptism, for it marks you out as God's own. He will give you salvation, and when final judgment comes, it will be for your good. And that gives us hope, because... We remember, there's one final thing we remember. Jesus, the one who has given us baptism, is the one in charge. We are recipients of grace because we're marked out by the one in charge as those he loves. And so we know who it is who loves us. We know who it is who has marked us out as his own. And he has bought us with a price. And he is in charge. Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. That he is the follow, you know, he is in the, he's the second person of the Trinity. I almost committed a heresy there, right? Uh, he is God become a man. And so he is the God being referred to by Isaiah that Peter was referring to back at the beginning of the passage, saying the one who loves you is in charge. And Peter assures us that Jesus is now gone into heaven and at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And when Jesus went to heaven, he sat down on the throne, the throne of the universe as rightful king. And that's why Jesus said before speaking of baptism that all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to him. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Be encouraged. I am with you always to the end of the age. So often we search for identity or comfort in power, but we are to find it in Jesus Christ, the true superpower. Then, then, We don't have to respond to hostility with fear or derision or defensiveness. But instead, we can respond with love and gentleness and kindness and good works, even when we are slandered because we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that Christ has triumphed and will triumph. That's why Jesus said what I said at the beginning of our service. Jesus said that in me, you will have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So friends, our king has given us himself and marked us as his own, and he's now in charge, and that is good news that gives us hope and confidence to do good and to answer kindly to all who ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, give us your spirit and continue to increase in us faith that Jesus is in charge, and let that truly transform us as we know your love more and more and become more and more confident that you will deliver us, you will show us your love, and you will indeed save us even in the judgment as you did Noah in the midst of the flood. May that make us glad to answer gently and with respect always hoping and praying that those to whom you've led us to answer, even though they might persecute us now, would actually join us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do this work in us and through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.